This is Radio ANA, broadcasting on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We are Annalise and Arnie, talking about community and individual responses to harm, transformative justice, accountability, safety, support and healing and prison abolition within and challenging dominator culture. We would like to acknowledge Aboriginal elders past and present and to acknowledge and honour the resistance of First Nations people across these lands. just listen to Damaged by Maisha. On this show, we speak with Bo Spiram from the Frontier War Stories. We'll be talking to Bo about Aboriginal responses to harm and conflict pre-colonisation. And so over to Bo. Uh, so Yama, Bo Spiram, Gumroi, Kuma, Marawari, born in Western Sydney and grew up on the south side of Brisbane. I'm a radio host, a podcaster, uh, and an activist. The radio show that I host is called Let's Talk. It's on 98.9 FM, an Aboriginal radio station in Brisbane. It's a national talkback program, uh, Monday to Thursday from 9 to 10. And I host uh, Frontier War Stories, a podcast that looks at the first 140 years of conflict and resistance uh, between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people. I speak with researchers, historians, writers, musicians, anybody really that has recorded this history uh, in their own way and 
and have been willing and, and, and honest or free to chat with me on the podcast. There's about 20 episodes up now. I'm hoping by the time this episode comes out that I'll have another episode uh, ready uh, over the weekend. And I'm a part of Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance up here in Brisbane. And how did the Frontier War Stories podcast come about? Well, for sure. So the long, so I guess the long story short, back in 2013, I was given uh, an awesome comic book. It was called 500 Years of Resistance. And it looked at the native resistance in Turtle Islands. So from Canada to the United States to Central America to North, uh, South America as well. So dating back as far as 1492 when uh, the Spanish uh, invaded in South America and around the Caribbean, uh, and then looking at up till about the early 90, early early 90s, I want to say, 1990s. Yeah, and it was, it was just an amazing uh, comic book, so inspiring. It was each sort of uh, story consisted maybe like a page and a half maybe of different uh, stories about different resistance in the Americas and or what is now known sort of as the Americas. Actually, I was talking to the, the creator of that because I, I was telling him, oh, yeah, this is the inspiration for my podcast. So the original copy was black and white. Now this next copy that he's uh, redoing is colour, and I think it's out in September, November. So uh, it's called 500 Years of Resistance. I do urge people to get it. He, he's written a bunch of other sort of awesome uh, manuals and comics. Another one is called The Anti-Capitalist Resistance, uh, which is cool, and a whole bunch of manuals that, that he wrote he's an activist uh, back home as well so it's very you know activist uh, type uh, manuals uh, that he wrote as well so that that's the short story of where the idea came from and at the time i was doing radio but i didn't really put the one and two together and say hey i'll do a podcast maybe it was a good thing as well because i don't think i would have been ready for the responsibility of the podcast back then as well so and it was something that i sort of just held on to myself for like maybe four or five years and then had the opportunity to bring out the idea a bit more as well. Uh, a few years ago when I was in Sydney, I guess last year under COVID was sort of the right time to start a podcast because I uh, wasn't really at work as much. And then also, yeah, just had a bunch of time uh, here as well. And the first episode was recorded on the 25th of April, so uh, Anzac Eve which was good. It was, we wanted to start sort of an alternative discussion. And then from there, you know, that's when the sort of podcast sort of rolled on. So you talked a bit there about the responsibility of the podcast. Can you tell us a bit about that? Like, yeah, what are the responsibilities of those stories of the, yeah, those years of resistance? Definitely, definitely. I guess the responsibility is sort of knowing the importance of the story. And I think that's one of the, the keys to the podcast. And I think that speaks to the education system and and how i guess everybody has been taught in the last i don't know 100 years you know we sort of been taught this narrative that aboriginal people didn't necessarily uh, resist the colonization uh massacres didn't happen there weren't no resistance leaders it was a peaceful settlement that's a one of the responsibilities i think is, is being honest about the history and knowing where it comes from as well and understanding the importance of knowing that the where the stories come from the aboriginal people still exist as well you know because there is a notion that aboriginal people don't exist you know there is that notion down in tasmania which is very disgusting and which we all widely know that there's blackfellas in tasmania they're thriving you know they revive the language they you know have been speaking their language for quite some time and yeah and and, and i think that's a another responsibility as well and i think also the responsibility of changing how this history is being taught. Essentially what I'm doing is, is, is uh, storytelling uh, through history. And if anything, you know, storytelling uh, has been one of the most tools to continue, you know, telling history or just telling a conversation uh, in general. Aboriginal people have been, you know, telling stories. Everybody's been telling stories around the world. It's sort of essential to who we are as well. And what I wanted to do was take this history, reclaim it, and then make it more accessible uh, to people who aren't necessarily uh, readers. You know, I'm not a, you know, I find it difficult to pick up a book and sort of sit there and read. I always have, you know, still do. And, you know, I'm more sort of visual and sort of hands-on when it comes to sort of learning things as well. So, you know, I wanted 
give the opportunity for any other any other people out there that have uh, those difficulties as well. Um, you know, and I find that's a responsibility as well is to sort of take these stories that have been locked in history books and have been collecting dust uh, for decades and put them back, you know, in the minds and in the heart, you know, first and foremost, Aboriginal people and then anybody else who wants to, you know, hear that collective history. Bo, one of the things that in listening to the Frontier War stories that wasn't at the forefront of what people were were saying but definitely was a theme that came up in a lot of the episodes and because our podcast is about transformative justice and different responses to harm that are alternatives or adjacent to you know policing or prisons was people talking about aboriginal responses to harm pre-colonization I found this really fascinating and we know this, like we know that police didn't exist in so-called Australia. We know prisons didn't exist pre-colonisation. And so for us, we really wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah, the things that you kind of heard and things that you know of, of Aboriginal responses to harm pre-colonisation. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, and I think all, if not nearly everywhere around the world at one point in time, never had police or you never had prisons as well. You know, it's this notion of of sort of society and control that we think is normal, which we're sort of brainwashed to think that is this is a societal norm. When you know when, when we're just growing up, you know the things that we watch. You know, like some of the cartoons that my kids watch, they sort of idolise you know police or notion of a good guy and a bad guy and you know punishment and stuff as well. Yeah, so from a young age, we're really taught that A is a bad guy and B is a good guy and a, you know, one gives out the justice to the other and, you know, one sort of gets in trouble and one sort of gets locked up and there's sort of no middle ground trying to find what sort of the root cause of that. And, you know, one thing that I don't think this is, you know, something that I'd love to delve more into with the podcast as well is looking at, you know, transformative justice and sort of how it was used uh, pre-colonisation as well. Like, and it was sort of always a recurring thing in the podcast, like you mentioned, where I would sort of say, hey, well, what was happening before? You know, and most of these historians or researchers will say, oh, well, you know, Aboriginal people did everything they can to sort of divert from having to uh, respond with violence. That was sort of the last thing uh, in their means as well. And I think that comes back to how Aboriginal and maybe Toshana people sort of existed pre-colonisation in terms of how disputes uh, were settled. Um, and I think even in the podcast earlier on, there's discussions about how even when there were disputes being settled, it, it was it would be sort of arranged so that the end result that everybody was even or everybody had like a if somebody on one end was sort of hurt you know brutally hurt then somebody else would sort of come in and that sort of go till there was an even outcome and not necessarily win of it like anywhere uh, all over the world ego has always sort of existed as well and I think that plays a big part in how we look at response to violence pre-colonisation here and anywhere else around the world. Yeah, it's uh, something that I want to look at more into as well. You know, the stories of, of Aboriginal people waiting, you know, 10, 15 years to sort of hand out a, a punishment to sort of settlers, waiting long periods of time, waiting, biding their time, and when it comes up, they use the full extent to their own law, which may not even be killing the individuals. The episode that I chat about Billy Barlow was amazing because it sort of talks a bit about that as well. You know, and, and then also like in that episode as well, when we're, you know, when I'm talking to Libby Connors again, she mentions how, you know, the town was very fearful of sort of this resurgence from you know, Aboriginal people to the Brisbane colony. And it didn't happen because one, I guess, maybe Aboriginal people were in mourning. But on the other hand, the European settlers, you know, really sort of upped their arms and brought in more police and military to sort of think that there, there would be a response. It's definitely a topic that I want to look at as well. And I think there's like some really awesome Aboriginal philosophers around who up here in Brisbane who, like Annie Mary Graham, uh, she's amazing. You should check out her stuff. She talks about Aboriginal governance and interrelationality. Uh, how the the relationship between Aboriginal people and land were were linked, you know, extricably linked. And if one was broken, then both would be broken. And uh, we see how the breakdown of society here in Australia came when the the destroying of Aboriginal society what was occurring. 
through the the taking of land and then also destroying Aboriginal people. She talks about that as well. And I've been, yeah, just watching sort of videos or just listening to talks that she's done previously. And she's definitely somebody that I want to get on, you know, because you know, Aboriginal people existed in this continent. If people want to put a number on it, it's a very long time. And I guess through, you know, the research of Australians and, and Europeans now, there hasn't been any form of sort of Aboriginal people taking over other Aboriginal people's lands or slavery or kingdoms or sort of, you know, massive agricultural structures. And even when we look at sort of agricultural structures that Aboriginal people use, they were used to the point where the structure that they made would only gather as much as they would need in a certain area. And then so it would sort of trickle down to the next nation and the next nation and the next nation, so forth and so forth. And, you know, I think that is a real key in terms of how Aboriginal people treated each other. You know, that was a form of, of relationship in terms of saying, hey, you know, the mob didn't even have to sort of say, hey, or, or, or pull another mob up. You know, it was these things uh, existed. And I think that went into sort of how Aboriginal people in the beginnings wanted to have relationships uh, with white followers. There's the stories of how Aboriginal people thought they were ghosts and another being and stuff. Once it became paramount that these people were very violent, you know, Aboriginal people were onto that, you know, and were communicating that, you know, effectively to different parts of the country. We're going to listen now to Black Smoke from Emily Warren. I'll be sleeping under stars tonight Not sure exactly where I'll be Maybe underneath the pale moonlight Or maybe underneath that tree Black smoke Riding in the sky tonight Everything will be alright If you let go Gathered in a place tonight Everything will be alright If you let go
sky tonight Everything will be alright If you let go talking about the sort of good bad binary um i guess in western society and i was wondering like from that how do you see this thinking play out similarly or differently in aboriginal cultures and communities yeah yeah and i think there's always been a notion of good and bad as in any society you know even where i'm from you know down northern new south wales we have many stories and i'm sure it's the same for others but i can't talk about that but you know we have stories of three bad spirits we have stories of people stealing other people we we all have these stories and you know i think you know they're told to sort of set a certain balance in in our society as well and you know whether it's sort of fear in, in young people and then you know once they grow they learn the responsibilities of both you know good and bad or the the yin and the yang or whatever it is whatever sort of term may be you know on this continent you know, you really see the breakdown, the relationships that Aboriginal people have or even Indigenous peoples have in other parts of the world uh, due to sort of how Europeans knew to sort of divide and conquer, whether it's in a tribal sort of warfare, you know, even though those things already existed. But due to the relationships that we had, those conflicts were had and fought on uh, terms which would set the scene for these sort of conflicts to be set in a safe space you know, to be overseen and if things are out of hand, like, they could stop it. You know, it was regulated to a degree, I could say, as well, you know. And even in the podcast, there's some stories. I think in the second or third one, one of the first interviews I did with Libby, and she mentions how Europeans would sort of sneak and look at how, you know, Aboriginal people would perform their fighting uh, abilities with each other in sort of ceremonial faces and, and how they would they sort of reminded them of theatre back home, so they would always, you know, try and record these uh, events happening as well. But interesting to look at how how different uh, the battlefront uh, were when we look at Aboriginal conflicts amongst Aboriginal people and then sort of conflicts amongst Aboriginal people and sort of Europeans uh, as well, or Europeans anywhere else in other parts of the world. You know, they had sort of the designated sort of areas for these sort of things as well. And they were maybe looked upon by an eldership uh, maintain uh, the peace beyond sort of these sort of battlegrounds. To kind of explore that a bit more, though, you know, and you said Aboriginal people caught it on pretty quickly that this colonial way that was happening was a different kind of violence. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what did that mean for Aboriginal people when they were used to living in this way with land, with connection, with each other re- relationally for such a long, long time? And then to to see this other way um, yeah. of, of being in relationship with, with each other and this other way of being in relationship with violence. That's a really good question. We can talk about some of the responses in terms of how individuals that, you know, responded to sort of, you know, this colonial violence as well. Yeah, you know, so like there's instances where I've had a chat on the podcast about how Aboriginal people would sort of respond to this as well. To colonial violence and for a period of time, one of the ways that Aboriginal people would respond to it and what I see as a pattern happening, whether or not Aboriginal people had communication with each other across vast amounts of land, which they did as well through sort of the the communication through smoke signalling and having runners, individual people who would run 
hundreds of kilometers, you know, over a period of time. That was their job. Um, you know, these responses were, you know, average people would wage this sort of economic warfare against pastoralists and um, cattle station owners. So what they would do is they'd burn the crops or they'd burn the, the, the livestock or they'd free the livestock. They'd herd it out with dingoes. Usually, I think, and in some cases, young kids uh, would participate in sort of this with, with the dingoes. And then also there were, there were instances where they would go to war, obviously, with, with European settlers. There were several ways that Europeans would go to war and would massacre Aboriginal people. So obviously they would find a camp and they would just outright slaughter Aboriginal people. And usually this happened in the mornings, early in the mornings, and everybody's sort of waking up or when they're still asleep, or at night time when uh, they're getting ready to sleep, like at dusk and they're relaxing, eating food or whatever. You know, so these two moments are when the people are in a more relaxed sort of state. These are when Europeans would attack, whether that would be military, native police, police, or even just sort of squatters and, and settlers as well. And I guess in some cases, Aboriginal people would sort of do the same thing to them. You know, they would um, sneak up on them, usually throw, usually sort of get their attention and, and start fighting, as I said, light fires. In most cases, I believe, and, you know, people can correct me if I'm wrong, they wouldn't necessarily uh, harm they, they would usually strike to sort of harm and, and maim and, and to be a signal as, you know, this is your punishment. You know, further sort of doing of this would, would result in sort of the death, you know, of you as well. Um, so we see lots of instances of, of Europeans getting speared by, you know, certain spears. And I think usually they could identify the certain spears that, from the individuals who threw them because there were certain markings on those spears where they could identify the owners. You know, and then obviously there was instances where Aboriginal people would kill other Europeans as well. People, I think like Pemoae, I think he knew the difference between sort of the regular soldiers and the high, high-end high sort of soldiers as well. And I think he would usually fight, you know, or usually sort of attack the, the high-end soldiers. Uh, there was instances where like Dundali, he was very smart, you know, he... Uh, Dundali was a warrior up here in Brisbane uh, from southeast Queensland. Uh, he was a Dalamana of the the Kabi Kabi or Kabi Kabi Nation up here in southeast Queensland, usually located on the Sunshine Coast, just north of Brisbane. And um, he was very smart because at a young age, he interacted uh, with Europeans a lot. He went on lots of trips to sort of negotiate and to sort of understand, you know, Europeans a lot as well, to the point where he had a, a white name and he had a white counterpart who they traded sort of names or they gave each other names as well. So he understood sort of how Western society worked. He was very smart. He was never caught for, you know, any of the crimes uh, that he did. He, when he was finally hung, he was hung uh, because some witnesses saw that he committed, I believe, a murder. It was, you know, and he would sort of wage economic warfare, but then also he would be very strategic. He'd essentially have Aboriginal people as his you know, soldiers, you know, he'd be the general and he'd be sort of given orders as well. Quickly, Aboriginal people became well aware of the tactics that Europeans were using. And then we see, you know, throughout the different parts of the country, Aboriginal people starting to use horses uh, and also firearms as well from uh, Walia, who's an Aboriginal uh, a woman in Tasmania, you know, was using guns to get her freedom. She was sold from by Aboriginal people to European uh, sealers and whalers and then slowly learn how to fire uh, uh, guns and, and speak English. And she you know, escaped from there, went back to her people and uh, formed a band of warriors and then went around and has, t- terrorised Tasmania. In Western Australia, there's Jendamara, who's, who's a Bunaba, Bunaba, I believe, a man, uh, in the, sort of the Kimberley region. And he was, in his earlier life, he, he would participate in the arrest of Aboriginal people and the capture. In, so in Western Australia, I believe there wasn't native police there. Usually the police uh, had offsiders, and I think that's what he was. And he, I guess, you know, ended up just getting sick of sort of seeing the treatment of his people, and he kills sort of his dude who sort of he works with and frees the Aboriginal people. And then for a couple of years, he has this amazing resistance uh, in the Kimberleys region. And one of the things to be sort of an offsider in Western Australia, I think you had to know how to ride a horse and be like a real crack shot, and, and he was both. You know, so there's stories of where he's actually riding on horses 
chasing people down and uh, and having gunfights on horses on horseback as well. That sort of top speeds. Yeah, and no, I so there's there's many stories of sort of how Aboriginal people responded to European violence as well. And obviously there was that story of of Billy Barlow that we spoke about where there was a rape of a of a young woman, really really young woman, and the perpetrator admitted to it, but because she was Aboriginal. Uh, he was he was let off, and even though you know the crime was so brutal that European settlers sort of testified against him, Billy Barlow, you know, never forgot this person's what he looked like, what his name was, and you know waited ten, fifteen years to sort of pay him back, and it was an amazing story of justice uh, for that individual and for those mob uh, back then as well. You know that he waited so long, and then you know all of a sudden these people wanted to find their way up river. Bell loggers, they remembered this individual and Billy Barlow told the blackfellas to stay back and he went up offshore, I think it was, with two people and then killed one and, you know, really hurt this person, I think, and then he, he got away and he ends up dying and falling, you know, getting drunk and falling in, in the Brisbane River, I think, and, and dying this individual as well. So a bit of sweet justice, you know, for the mob back then. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, like, uh, you know, when you're sharing that story, I was also thinking about how in that episode there's, like, some conversation around the amount of sort of nations and groups that were able to sort of come together, meet together to have a coordinated resistance. And I'm wondering from your learnings, like, or the stories you've heard, what is the sort of significance of Aboriginal nations and communities having these ways of resolving conflict for the frontier wars yeah yeah definitely definitely it's so important and paramount to sort of the survival of aboriginal people today as well and and sort of the understanding you know like these gatherings pre-colonization changed dramatically because now they're talking about sort of a growing sort of population who keeps taking their land and keeps sort of violating their laws and killing their people. You know, so when they had these gatherings before, it just would have been business as usual, gathering for, you know, maybe what is in season in sort of a certain area, uh, the right to trade and maybe marriage, conflict resolution, or even just sort of gathering to sort of compete in sort of traditional sports or whatever. And then all of a sudden while they're having these, they're sort of extended meetings, having a discussion about... So here in southeast Queensland, there was a Kilcoy massacre, and I believe it was a poisoning of a river. I forgot the number, but I think it was quite a lot. So the next gathering that happened was to talk about the response to that. And it's quite interesting because at the time, I believe uh, Multugra and his father are still alive and... And they go to this gathering and I believe like people like Billy Barlow and also Dundalee were around that time. But it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty cool to think that nowhere in European sort of our writing or history, they have these sort of Aboriginal figures, well, Billy Barlow and Dundalee, you know, were known to each other by European settlers. Yeah, Maltagara was a part of sort of the first defeat that the Europeans had biggest defeat that they had in the New South Wales, the sort of furthest north in the New South Wales colony. Um, so Brisbane was even established then. I mean, it was established like in the 1850s or 60s. They have these gatherings and, you know, there's these sort of amazing individual sort of resistance leaders who become very prominent as time sort of goes by. And it's pretty cool to think that, well, I think it'd be pretty cool to think that they would have met and they would have had these discussions about response to, you know, the growing threat of, of European settlement uh, on their lands as well. And to account, there isn't any uh, in European uh, sort of documentation as well. But these these gatherings ch- changed dr- dramatically. And in some cases, maybe they would have gotten smaller and wouldn't have been as long because of, or maybe even this place would have needed to start to be, to, uh, to be shared as well because of how fast, you know, the, gro- the, the colony is growing here. The growing colony here in Australia grew very fast and quick. In 50 years, they were already in northern New South Wales uh, on my country. You know, so the 1830s, I think it was, by the 1830s, they were already 
getting to Gimilaro country. So the Sydney colony is well established. Parts of Tasmania is because of the ongoing sort of colonisation to that because geographically that was, I believe, like a, you know, the, the fishing down there was amazing. So there, there was all different types of, of white people there, you know, from different parts of Europe. The Sydney, the, the British colony was already established well enough to sort of move out further and further. Unlike other places around the world, in the Americas it sort of took, you know, a bit longer uh, maybe because their tactics weren't as brutal. I don't know, but you know, the tactics here were very, very brutal, very swift and fast as well. So, you know, Aboriginal people had to change very quick with the times in terms of adapting to how Europeans uh, would carry out violence. And we would, you know, the further sort of north of Sydney they went, the tactics changed from Europeans, like they were staying out longer. They were using more horses and more ammunition and more guns as well. And they were usually training squatters and and that as they went on as well to sort of help carry out massacres in different parts of the country as well but yeah like those gatherings would would change drastically in terms of how things are starting to change very fast i'm hearing that aboriginal responses to conflict and harm is very linked to relationship to country and relational so and these things are are completely intertwined they're not separate so for colonisers, why was that important for them to disrupt this? Like, why is that a tool of colonisation to ensure that there's a disconnection and there's a, an erasure there? Definitely, because because through that process, they get a continent for free. That's sort of a line that I've heard lots of Aboriginal elders sort of say, you know, I think only Mary Graham says it, you know, Uncle Coco says it as well. They say, you know, like, if we sort of lay down and die, then they get a continent for free. That's sort of a, a credit to the resistance even today. The June 13th is the anniversary of the Mile Creek Massacre, which stands the test of time here in Australia because it's one of the only times where a group of white men were found guilty and were hung for their crimes for, for a massacre. It's very unique because it hasn't happened. There's been other individual cases in different parts of the, of the country where an individual white man would kill an individual black person and be found guilty. But for a massacre, it was sort of totally different. And, and what we saw there was a group of convicts led by a squatter uh, went and massacred an ab- a group of about 28 Aboriginal people. And there were two court cases. They won the first one and then they lost the second one. That's when they were hung. Out of the 10 or 12, seven were found guilty and hung. What that shows in this time as well, especially with cases like that is not just the racism in the society, but then also the classism uh, as well and how that played out. Because lots of the times these squatters would be Irish or Scottish, you know, people who've been, who came over as prisoners or even English prisoners as well. And the squatters and, and sort of the partial owners would be these wealthy uh, Europeans who have sort of, been given this land or bought this land sort of from the New South Wales government and they have a vested interest in the land as well and this is maybe my own theory but I think one of the reasons why there was never no justice for Aboriginal people on the frontier was because of the vested interest in the land or sort of the economic gain where Aboriginal people were sort of being killed you know so if it was anything along the coastlines to do with sort of fishing or, or diving usually there was a vested interest in sort of having vessels to sort of fish or, you know, having equipment to dive uh, for pearls or whatever. And these European settlers, they owned all the equipment and all these different things to sort of make this happen. And they had connections to, you know, powerful, influential law enforcement, uh, lawyers, and maybe influence over judges as well. Uh, So what we see with Mile Creek is I believe the land owner, his name is Decker, and the land owner... Obviously, he was never charged, yeah, and, and obviously he didn't care uh, whether Aboriginal people died or not as long as he had his land you know, and was generating wealth. After that, um, so the seven people die, you know, the sort of the perpetrators, you know, they're hung, they're dead. On the other hand, he, he ends up getting more and more land as the years come by and uh, there's a whole bunch of sort of parks and sort of bridges and streets that are named after this guy as well. This is what would happen when 
Europeans would sort of massacre Aboriginal people, there was always this sort of bid uh, for more and more land and that's that's why the frontier was so brutal. And I think continued, right, like the, the reason why there's so many Aboriginal people incarcerated and experiencing, you know, racial profiling is because of land, you Definitely. know. In the, one of the episodes I'll talk about sort of incarceration and sort of how as early as sort of 1803 or 1810, you know, Aboriginal people already coming in contact with the convict system and Australia is sort of gazetted as prison islands. So what was happening was that uh, the British, some of their colonies, especially in the Pacific uh, region, they, they would send their Indigenous prisoners to Australia. So there'll be unmarked, there'll be grave sites that had descriptions on them in, in a totally different language from, you know, Māori to South African to Hawaiian, I believe, and other Pacific nations, as well as, you know, these Indigenous men getting locked up, you know, Aboriginal uh, uh, men and, and young boys were getting locked up. And because they were getting locked up at a, at a higher rate because of their response to sort of colonial violence, in the mid-1850s, the New South Wales sort of government were like, hold on, wait a minute. You know, there's lots of Aboriginal people dying in custody here. Why are they dying in custody? You know, because usually the Aboriginal people are being brought in, busted up, wounds, or uh, and the food that they're eating and sort of the condition that the prisons are in as well are really having a massive effect on Aboriginal people. So they would be coming in, and as quick as they, they came in, they were sort of uh, dying off as well within weeks or months. So they said that don't bring an Aboriginal person in unless they've committed a serious crime. And, and that, those things never stop. You know, as you mentioned, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are getting locked up at a higher rate than, than any other time uh, in the history of this country. One of the cruel things that exist today is, you know, these places where they held Aboriginal people and also, you know, other European prisoners or, or even other Indigenous men. I'm sure you would have heard of Rottnest Island in Western Australia off the southeast coast of Perth, and that's sort of now a, a resort, you know, people holiday. It was a prison camp where... Usually, you know, Aboriginal men and boys were sent, you know, for life or to die. And, like, that could be said about the massacre sites that happened. Usually lots of those happened around waterholes because Aboriginal people were camping. You know, these are sort of places people holiday to and sort of, you know, drive past as well, not knowing the significance of these sites, the trauma that it holds for Aboriginal people. Maybe there's a part of me that's broken I confess these are words I've never spoken For fear of judgment and naive Of an affliction masked by invisibility Baby, there's a part of me that's broken When there's a spark that I can't rejoice in The little things I used to take for granted Now my nerves light up and scatter out like branches Release me from the heavy, it's weighing me down Release me from the heavy, it's weighing me down Baby, there's a part of me that's broken My legs don't work the way they used to do each day I learn new steps to move me closer Cause all I want to do is run to you Release me from the heavy that's weighing me down Release me from the heavy it's weighing me down me from the heavy it's weighing me down release me from the heavy it's weighing me down release 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 release, release me
I wondered other learnings you'd like to share either about the stories you've heard or from yourself or about what these kinds of learnings mean for today or for everyone living in so-called Australia. Definitely. You know, I think uh, one thing that we notice from the podcast is like that we weren't taught it. Give a, a whole belief in terms of or notion of what, like what, what have we been taught and why haven't we been taught this as well. You know, and I think, you know, like Invasion Day is sort of a, a day where people are sick of, you know, what, what is happening. Obviously, Aboriginal people are at the top of that, but then the majority of people that come are not Aboriginal. They make the, the vast numbers of, of this protest every year more significant because not just the numbers, but, you know, people are getting sick of the lies that they've been taught throughout their, you know, throughout their whole entire life. Like, I've been starting to go into schools, and, and one thing that I always say is, like, the history that we're taught in this country, the history that we're taught of European settlement and also federation is just that. You know, we're taught that in 1770, Cook sailed along the East Coast, went up to the Torres Straits in a place called Possession Island, got off the boat, stuck the flag down and proclaimed that it, the, East Coast, the East Coast, the British colony, then we're taught that in 1788, you know, the, the first colony was started with 11 ships, the first fleet landed. And then we're sort of taught that, or sort of highlighted more that in 1901, Australia was federated and we've become our own state, became our own country. And now the, the introduction of these new laws and policies are handed out. You know, what people don't realise is that in 1770, Cook didn't get out of the ship. And one of the reasons why he didn't get out of the ship is because Torres Strait people on the islands uh, saw uh, the smoke signalling from the mainland and was just like walking along sort of the, the coastline, tracking where Cook was going. And one of the elders who, who sort of tell the story uh, what I want to get on, I want to get him on and talk to him about it is that if you look at the painting of Cook playing the flag, it's like, you know, the, the painting in itself is of the mainland trees and environment instead of sort of a, an island sort of environment as well and more tropical, I guess, it would be our sort of landscape and you can sort of really depict and see how, how this sort of differs as well. You know, then in, when I think it's Arthur Philip and the First Fleet sort of land uh, in 1788, you know, start the British colonies. There's a whole, there's, there's 11 ships and on those ships are slaves, but then with those slaves, uh, military personnel as well, ready to expand the, the Sydney colony more. And I think not too long after they sort of set up, established the Sydney colony, they were, you know, already interacting and, and having battles with Aboriginal people as you know, then you fast forward to like, you know, 1901 and this is a big moment for Australia. It's federated. They create some of the most racist laws and policies in the world. But I guess it's the norm at that time with sort of European settlement. Some of the biggest sort of policies that come out, you know, would be uh, the Averages Protection Acts, which each state and territory had their own individual ones, which sort of came out. Uh, rolled out sort of over the next couple of years after 1901. And then another one would be the White Australia Policy, which saw the stopping of non-Europeans or making it a bit more harder for uh, non-Europeans to sort of settle and come to Australia and also be employed as well. So at that time, there was about 65,000 South Sea Islander uh, slaves. And, and obviously, the Australia... British, you know, supposedly abolished slavery. And so what they were calling them was they were indentured labour. Uh, 65,000, that's a lot of, of bloody people to sort of say, hey, yep, we just ripped this document, you know, you all have to go. If not, you know, you have to marry into the Aboriginal people and then you can sort of stay here as well. And so that's where we see sort of this big mix of Aboriginal and South Yonder people along the coastline in particular, so, you know, as far down as Tweed Heads and up back up, you know, as far north, sort of, you know, to the tropical areas. And these policies sort of existed up till, you know, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, but the mentality still carried over as well. And it's a real colonial mentality that this brutal force that needs to be used towards Aboriginal people or people of colour, women, of course, as well. And and queer and trans people as well like this behavior you know still continues today i could sort of go into more about contemporary times and sort of protests and stuff as well which, which i'm going to do some more podcasting on that yeah, it would definitely be we would be keen to talk to you again about that 
this is what we're not taught about history. You know, these things that at one point in time there were sixty five thousand slaves that were brought here over maybe a maybe less than fifty sixty year period to do the hard labor of sugarcane cutting and to sort of build this industry up. Then we forget that Townsville, you know, Robert Towns, he was a big exporter. He was a slaver. Um, he really fought hard to sort of have slavery continue in Australia. And that's what sort of Townsville gets a name from as well. Thank you so much, Bo. I feel like we could keep talking with you yeah. and keep chatting. Yeah. But we'd love to have you on again and keep talking to you about this stuff. Is there a way that people can listen to Frontier War Stories and your radio show? For sure, yeah. So people can just Google Frontier War Stories and then sort of the streaming platform that I use, Podbean, will come up. Through Podbean, people can join the Patreon and they can you know, donate as much as they want or as less as they want to the podcast. I think like as less as like $5 and then I think it's like 15 or 20 is as much as people can donate to the podcast. They can also create their own accounts and sort of officially follow the, the podcast. And they, they get notifications when the podcast comes out. You can also listen via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the stream platforms as well. And then there's a PayPal connected to my Instagram where people can click that and, and donate whenever as well. That's Frontier War Stories. And then my work show is Let's Talk. You can listen to that. If you're in Brisbane, in sort of southeast Queensland, you can listen to it via the radio, which is 98.9, so 98.9 FM. You can go to our website, 989fm.com.au, and follow the links to the, to the podcast, to the programs, and you can listen to Let's Talk, our previous Let's Talk programs as well. Definitely, definitely follow War on Facebook, Instagram, I think there's a Twitter account as well. Yeah, because obviously there's chapters in Melbourne, Brisbane that are very active uh, in the community uh, up here and down there as well. So definitely follow those because there's always lots of things that are, that are coming up or that war are supporting uh, with other marginalised communities. Thank you so much again for coming on and sharing everything with us and with listeners. And we, yeah, look forward to hearing more in the future. Awesome. Now, thanks for you know giving us the the platform to have a yarn about the podcast really appreciate it some really good questions as well like got me thinking you know about sort of some other ideas for the podcast you know some other guests that i should get on to redefine uh some of the questions as sort of episodes in the podcast as well. would be really keen to check out uh the interview as well so definitely share it uh with us as well and i'll definitely share it uh, on on my platform awesome thank you bo and i will definitely do that you know these conversations for us or for me as a settler really does transform the way that we grow up in this or I've grown up in this system that's based on punishment that's based on like Mm. a colonial wage to punish prisons Mm. and police this kind of punishment mind and I think Mm. listening to you and listening to other Aboriginal people who've talked about different responses to harm completely challenges the whole paradigm of the world that we live in and um, mm. so for us, it's important to keep having these conversations to think that it is possible to not live in this world that we are in right now. Oh, definitely. And they are examples of sort of a world without prisons or our polices. And it's just, I guess, the hard job of the abolitionists, you know, who've been doing amazing work, refigure what a world would look like uh, without them as well. So credit to, uh, to, to those people having the hard conversations and creating space. It's always uh, important as well to look at that and or even just cross-examine to see how it existed you know uh, here or or somewhere else as well and uh, giving that example that maybe there's a possibility of it existing today as well thank you so much and we really All recommend goodness. for people to support Bo and your work and to get on the patreon listen to frontier war stories awesome no thanks for that thanks Bo. Before we listen to Broken by Leah Flanagan and we will end the show with Kale by Amanes. Kale
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.